You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. So now we've talked about the broad categories of uh, what's forbidden and what's permitted in terms of um, uh, Jewish food. This is just the, 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 the food items themselves, which are largely related to um, uh, animal consumption, uh, you know, uh, fresh fruits, vegetables, nuts, things like that are all inherently kosher. So really, you know, 99% of kosher laws um, relate, maybe 100% of kosher laws relate to uh, the consumption or the proximity of consumption to animal products. Um, so, which means that, and uh, uh, Lisa and I were talking about this earlier, basically means that um, uh, if you're vegetarian, uh, then there's very little that you really need to do uh, beyond that in order to keep kosher. There you go, Michael. So, some people are vegetarian for just that reason, right? Um, uh, and, uh, and certainly, if you're vegan, certainly if you're vegan, uh, it makes it. But you know, if you if you fish, there's some other. If you fish, there's obviously things you need to think about, and if you eat uh, dairy and eggs, there's some other things you need to think about. But uh, and and. Uh, we talked about a, a few of the things that are related to uh, fruits and vegetables. They're not about the fruits and vegetables themselves, right? So we talked, we read uh, from Leviticus and Deuteronomy about the kinds of animals that we can't eat and includes uh, insects and uh, most kinds of insects and things like that. And so, you know, the reason why a piece of fruit uh, might not be kosher is not because of the fruit itself, but because it uh, because of the possibility that it has an insect on it or in it. Um, and so we talked a little bit about uh, um, taking care of that. But so most of most of practical kashrut um, doesn't really deal so much with what foods are forbidden and not forbidden. Those are actually fairly. That's actually the fair. This, even though we took a whole class on it last time, that's actually the fairly simple stuff, right? Because you could just run it down the list. The more challenging question is um, what happens with uh, when when non-kosher stuff gets mixed in with kosher stuff. Um, and that includes what happens when uh, meat gets mixed in with dairy and dairy mixed in with meat, what constitutes mixing, um, and what are the uh, policies and procedures and protocols that one has to go through in order to try to prevent mixtures from happening, um, if there are policies and procedures and protocols like that. Okay, so that's that's really like where the complicated stuff in Kashrut uh, comes in. Okay, so there's a few uh, broad uh, issues and categories that I want to um, run down. So we're going to spend the first half of the class talking about things that uh, may or may not be exclusively related to meat and milk, and then the second half of the class talking about meat and milk. Okay? Alright, so um, the first thing that I want to talk about is um, something called B-Tool. That's not going to work. Okay, whatever. Um, Two chairs. Two chairs. Two chairs. Two chairs. Oh, great. Yeah. Bring Emma the chair. Two chairs. <laughs> I think I know what you're going to do. Oh, no, I'm good. 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 I'
to wear black. So B tool means nullification. Okay? So what that means is that there are uh, certain mixtures of kosher and non-kosher things, right? Let's say, you know, a mixture of like kosher steak and pork, okay? That in which the non-kosher substance might become nullified. In other words, it is considered to really not exist in the context of that dish. Are you with me? Are you following me? Right, so if, uh, so the, you know, if, I, if I'm making, you know, a pot of beef stew, and a piece of bacon happens to fall in, uh, there are situations, scenarios in which that would not render the dish unkosher. Okay? So, the first thing we need to know, and this is, this is very important, okay? The first thing you need to know when it comes to nullification, when it comes to B-tool, um, is the following principle. Ain't Like you, like if you know that's not kosher, you can't even go into it from the beginning. 
Exactly. Right. So imagine the scenario that I just thought. So everybody get what Xavier says. It means that it means that um, though we have this principle of B tool, which means that something non-kosher can theoretically be nullified um, in a kosher mixture. In a kosher mixture, keeping the mixture kosher and saying that the thing that was not kosher that fell in doesn't really exist theoretically. Right. But you would think, okay, great. <laughs> like, that's awesome. Because I'm going to make my pot of stew, and I'm just going to drop a piece of bacon in there, and fantastic. It's going to be, and, right? No more accidents. <laughs> but this says, We can't do that, right? If you do that, it's not nullified. The non-kosher thing is not nullified. Right? It renders the whole thing not kosher. So the only instance in which B-tool is relevant, in which nullification is relevant, is when it's an accident, right? If you accidentally knocked that piece of bacon into your pot of stew, then the stew remains good. What? Your Goyesh friends came over, they welcomed you to the neighborhood, and they said, have this platter of bacon, and you're like, what am I going to do with this? i got to make a stew, I'm just going to put it up here on the windowsill, and then a squirrel came, took a piece of bacon, and dropped it into the stew as it was going to rain. Okay, yes, agree. That doesn't work for... And then during Passover, mm. right? Uh, well, so the principle uh, doesn't apply for Passover. The principle of B-Tool sort of applies on Passover, but doesn't apply on Passover, okay? So um, it, uh, it, it basically does, you're right, it basically doesn't apply on Passover. It can apply to things before Passover. So that's why... Um, I don't want to get too deep into Passover stuff, but I can buy a um, a food item before Passover that uh, that might have accidentally at some point. It's not a chametz food item; it's not an item with leaven in it. Um, but it may have accidentally at some point come into contact with leaven, so it's not certified as kosher Passover. So I can buy that before Passover because before Passover, um, chametz leaven is nullified by a certain percentage. We'll get to that percentage in a second. Um, and, but during Passover, it's not. Okay, so, so if I bought that same food item during Passover, we need a Passover certification to say it had never come into contact with leaven, because on Passover, um, uh, it can't be nullified. So here are the two, there, there are a handful of uh, different uh, um, uh, breakdowns of nullification, but the here are the two most important ones, I think. Okay, the first is called Batel the Shishim. So, who wants to take a stab at what that means? We 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 know Batel, right? Same as Bitul, Mivatlin. Uh, what is Batel? Annulled, nullified, right? Nullified. Anybody know what uh, what shishim is? Sixty nullified in sixty. What do you think that means? Good. Sixty parts per one. Right. So let's take our pot of beef stew and the bacon that accidentally fell in because that squirrel. Right. If the beef stew is sixty times the volume or more, sixty times or more the volume of that bacon that fell in. The bacon is nullified, the stew is still kosher. 
<laughs> the rabbis of the Talmud. So we'll get a long time ago. Um, so why? So tell me what? What? Tell me why that percentage is surprising to you or interesting to you? Um, I don't know. It's usually like in cooking with recipes, you have like it's by parts. Like if you make like a roux, it's like one part butter two or whatever the parts are. But like I'm just interested to see why six. No, what are the parts to the roux? Come on. <laughs> For whatever the fraction of it that you're using, or whatever the recipe is, the vast volume. Right. So. Well, no. no so, but hold on. I'm just, it, but I'm just saying the percentage interests me. I, it's just interesting that 60 yeah. percent, like as long as you have 60 percent more of whatever that initial thing is. 60 times. 60 times. 60, 60 times. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. I'm not guys. I don't know what. 60 parts stew. One little thing. Right. Okay. Right. Sixty parts stew, one part bacon. Right. So, um, so can you can you just 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 uh, just as a thought experiment, why would that why would that make sense? Why would you know to say that the non-kosher thing is nullified? It doesn't really exist if it's uh, one part in sixty. Um, can you can you can you imagine why they come up with something? What's that? Dilution. Dilution. What? It's a waste. It's a waste. Oh well, that that may be true too. If you had if you had like you know a sixty gallon stew and you know one gallon of uh, bacon fell in or something like that, right? It would be a waste of the other sixty. So that may be it too. But but I think that the issue is is that. Um, and so we were, we we're going to get to this later, but I'll but I'll throw it up there now. Yeah, friend. I have a question about this sixty part. No, this is for all. This is actually this is actually not relevant for Passover. This is not relevant for Passover. The only way in which this is. Yeah. So what's the percentage? One point six 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 percent. One point six 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 six. But if you're looking at. No, it's like one part 61 parts, though. It's one out of 61. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's 1.63. There you go. Okay. All right. All right. Hold on. All right. There's a lot of... Hold on. It doesn't matter. It's like one out of 10. Anyway, okay. It's a very small percentage. Um, and I think dilution is the key. So we'll talk about that in just a second. Fran? Chris reminded me of this argument I had once. But um, beef bourguignon, it's 60% beef, and then you have to have one piece of bacon, okay? And I make mine with that bacon, and apparently um, that's not the right recipe. So that's how I kept thinking. French Jews decided this, you know. Well, is, it, is it 60 parts beef to one part bacon, or is it 60% beef and 40% bacon? The way I make it is 100% beef. Anyway, no, I understand, but the, oh, the, tradi- the traditional recipe. Oh, I, normally it's only one piece of bacon. I know, but how much is that in relation to the volume of the rest of the dish? That's the... That's, uh, whether the whether the meat constitutes whether beef constitutes oh but it's probably that's probably what it is you're probably using like but hold on well so there are two there are two issues here okay hold on hold on we gotta we gotta do this in some kind of orderly fashion so one thing at a time so um I, I'm not sure exactly, but what it sounds like to me is that um, even if you didn't have this issue of aim of atli and isra um you're dealing with 
um, a, a, a much greater ratio of bacon to beef in the traditional recipe than one part in sixty. Even if it's just one piece of beef, one piece of bacon for a pot of beef stew, um, it's still not one part in sixty. Um, one part in sixty, I think, is a much bigger uh, yeah. distinction than that. And then you asked if, whether this has anything to do with Passover. What I want to say is, um, no, it doesn't, because uh, chametz is not uh, nullified in sixty parts. Um, on, on Passover. Before Passover, chametz can be nullified in 60 parts if it's an accidental mixture, right? So that's why I can buy my orange juice before Passover without a Passover hexure um, because there's a very low likelihood that it came into contact with chametz, and if it did, it was accidental because no one puts bread in orange juice. Um, and, uh, and presumably, um, if I tasted the orange juice and it had an accidental piece of chametz in it, it's not going to taste like chametz. So that's why it's relevant there, which goes to the, the next thing that I'll get to in just one second. Um, so the other relevant, and I know, Bonnie, you had a question, but just give me a second. So the other, the other like, relevant category of B-tool is known as um, afilu be'elef low batel. Anybody want to take a stab at what that means? Afilu be'elef low batel. Good. Even, Nancy, go ahead. Even in a thousand. Good. Even in one thousand, it is not nullified. Okay, so there are certain food items that even if they were accidentally dropped and into um, a, a, a mixture where the quantity of those things was one part to a thousand parts, it would still not nullify those things. So one example of that is chametz on Passover. Chametz on Passover is afiluba elef lo batel. If I dropped a breadcrumb into a giant vat of matzo ball soup on Passover, it would still make that not kosher. Right? Even if it was accidental, it would still make it not kosher. That's a filuba elef lo Um Another important example of that is um, uh, like whole, whole animals. Right? So, um, like a bug. Right? Um, whole bugs um, are afilu be'elef lo batel, which is part of why um, some people in some segments of the Jewish world are so obsessed with cleaning vegetables thoroughly, 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 because it's afilu be'elef lo batel. Um, but we talked about that last week, why um, I think that, that that's a little bit uh, uh, too much. Um, so there are certain things that are a few, other things that are a few lubelef lobatel are non-kosher food items that are, um, everything okay? Everything okay? You want to come sit over here? No, the table's sticky over here. Okay. Um, so non-kosher food items that are, um, that are like in and of themselves like fit to be served to people. Okay, so let's say I had a lamb chop, um, a pork chop, this is the easier one, a pork chop um, that dropped into, um, you know, a, a, a dish that was a thousand times its volume. Um, uh, 
in that instance, um, the principle of a cooked pork chop, I mean, um, in that instance, um, the principle of batal bashishim nullifying in 60 parts wouldn't apply because it's already fit to be consumed, right? If it was a raw lamb chop, that would be a different story. Um, okay, so when we talk about bitul, uh, those are the important considerations, right? When you're cooking in a kosher kitchen, um, there are all kinds of accidents. And so this applies, uh, for most, most people in a kosher kitchen, this applies more in the meat and milk realm than in any other realm, right? Because, like Nancy said, chances are not very high that if you have a kosher kitchen, um, uh, that, like, a piece of bacon is going to drop into your dish. Um, but it is certainly possible that, you know, like your kid, your two-year-old is like running by while you're making your, uh, your, um, uh, spaghetti with meat sauce and they like put their, um, you know, cheese stick in it, right? Uh, uh their mozzarella stick in it. So, right, so like that stuff happens all the time in, in kosher kitchens. So that's, um, um, I didn't say it happened to me. I'm just saying I can. Um, so, uh, uh, so that's so that's usually where uh, these issues come up into play more is in uh, mixtures of of meat and milk. So this this is an incident that actually has happened, and I just want to know what you would have done. They say that in 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 uh, Jewish law, it's a it's a maaseh shehaya, something that happened. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, so so it was a meat dinner. And accidentally, a dairy ladle went into the meat soup. Yeah. That's the situation. I'm yeah. not going to go further yeah. with that, but, you know. All right. So hold on to that thought. We're going to get there. All right? So just the ladle itself. A clean, a clean ladle. We're gonna we're gonna get we're gonna get there. We're gonna we're trying to lay out the groundwork first, but it's gonna impact things like that. Resources available were non-kosher. Do you survive off water alone, or yeah, I mean, it's a, it's it's hard to answer in a vacuum. It would sort of be situation dependent. But the general rule is that the Torah says the chai bahem, and the rabbis say the chai bahem veloshiyamut bahem, which means the Torah says that you should live through observing the commandments, uh, and the rabbis interpret that to mean that you should live through them and not die by them. Right, so if uh, um, in most instances, um, when you're faced with the prospect of either dying or, or observing the commandments, you break the commandments to live. Um, the only there are a couple of exceptions to that rule, but kashrut is not one of them. Um, okay, all right. Let's. So um, I have this as number three. We're only on number one, but I'll go ahead because it, it's relevant to Xavier's question. Um, the the issue here. Right? And why these rules are as they are, by and large, is because of a principle. Can you see what I write down here? Yeah. Principle that says, Ta'am Ke'ikar. Okay. Anybody know what that means? Good. Good. Taste is... Um, is like the essence. Or taste is the essence. 
This is a really important principle uh, that, so I, I said that there's going to be a lot of things I say are the most important principle in kosher. This is the most important principle in kosher, okay? Um, I had a teacher once that said uh, a lot of people uh, are led to believe that uh, kashrut is about cooties, right? But kashrut is not about cooties. Kashrut is about taste. Kashrut is about flavor. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean, like, okay, well, it doesn't taste like pork to me, so it's good to go, right? This is a legal system, and so the legal standards um, transcend any one individual person's taste buds, which is why the, uh, I don't know exactly why it's one part in 60, but I know why there is a rule like one part in 60, which is the standardized uh, um, uh, guideline that um, applies um, equally across all taste buds, right? Which is if I drop that piece of bacon, or let's say that drop of milk into my, we'll use that example because it's a better example, um, that drop of milk and a drop of cheese into my beef stew, if, uh, assuming it's accidental, if it is less than one part in 60 to the stew, my stew is not going to taste like cheesy stew. Right? Uh, someone said diffusion or something of flavor, right? Dilution. dilution that's right. Dilution, right? Um, that's the essence. So the essence of kosher, the, the essence ultimately of what renders something kosher or not um, in these kind of accidental mixtures um, is taste, is flavor. Right? So if it, and the, the term in halakha, in Jewish law, is... Um, no ten ta'am, which means um, uh, giving flavor. Good, giving or imparting flavor or taste. Right. So if something, if something is no ten tam, if something gives off flavor, uh, then it will render it unco. Right. So if that piece of cheese gave off cheesy flavor to the stew, it renders the stew unkosher because it's no tentam. It also means, though, that sometimes, and this is um, in part the relevant issue that, that you're raising, Bonnie, although we're not really getting there yet, is um, uh, certain uh, cooking utensils, cooking items, um, are understood to sort of absorb the flavor of the thing that they were um, uh, cooking or serving or whatever before, and that can impart that flavor into the next thing, right? So if I used a, um, a, a, a dairy uh, a ladle um, and it was, you know, covered in cheesy macaroni uh, and then I, you know, wiped it off, whatever, uh, and then put it in my beef stew, first of all, that wouldn't be, that would be aim about me east or the hot Cleveland, unless it was accidental. Let's say it was accidental, right? But so even so, there is a, a, a sense that it could impart the flavor of the dairy item into the meat, and so therefore might render it unkosher. Okay. So um, that's getting a little bit uh, into the weeds of it, so I don't want to get there quite yet. But the, uh, the, the salient issue, why the rules are uh, nullified in 60, or even in 1,000 it's not nullified, is basically because ta'am ki'ikar. The taste of a thing is as its essence, right? So, um, so if my if my stew ends up tasting like bacon, um, in some ways it doesn't matter whether or not it was one part in sixty, or the way I would know if it was one part in sixty because sometimes you can't really measure that thing is does this taste like bacon or does it not? Um, now, 
the the, the principle tam ikar means that there are um, other permutations of what can be nullified, which don't usually in modern kashrut get used all that much um, because of the development of Jewish law. But just you know to like make our heads spin a little bit, the Talmud talks a lot about uh, batel berov which means uh, nullified in a majority, right? Which means that if I have 51% of a, of a food that I'm cooking um, is, um, is a beef stew and some non-kosher beef fell into that stew, um, uh, that actually could theoretically, even though the uh, later rabbis made all sorts of reasons why, probably good reasons why we shouldn't do that, uh, but theoretically could be nullified in a majority of the substance. Right? Because ta'am ki'ikar, um, uh, it doesn't impart a non-kosher taste to the, the food item. Whereas cheese could not be batel barov in a pot of beef stew, right? Uh, or milk or something like that because it would, it would, it would clearly make it, um, a non-kosher flavor of meat and milk together. Nancy, you had your hand up? Oh, okay. Um, so let's, let's go back, um, in talking about B-tool, okay? Which is, uh, things that are theoretically not kosher, but can, or, or when they're mixed together would make something theoretically not kosher, but then, um, uh, still don't render the thing not kosher because of certain technicalities, okay? Um, so there's another, I think, important category here, um, uh, which is, um, I'll call it inedible foods. Okay, um, and the most common, you guys who uh, already have this all written down, if we want it, the last one is no ten tom. It's true. And it's also in the um, glossary that I... Thank you. It's So I have a glossary here uh, in the packet that should have some of these things too. Um, anyway, no ten tom, Nancy, which means giving flavor, gives flavor, yeah. Um, Everybody knows that's why Tom Tom crackers are called Tom Tom. Right. Yeah, exactly. There we go. Tasty, tasty. Um, oh, yeah. That's why I like to say it. Well, right. Well, that's the thing is, like, like any, what, what, a, what, a, what a product is called is usually the opposite of what that's what Michael Pollan says, never buy a food product that has a health claim on it. Right, right. Um, right. So I would, I, would, I would never buy a food item that says, like, well, except for maybe Tasty Cakes, because those are Tasty Cakes. Furry rule doesn't What? Tasty Cakes are kosher, at least in some flavors. Oh, the crickets are the, are the peanut butter Which are the peanut butter ones? Well, you think there are peanut butter crickets. Funny yeah. bugs. Yeah. Go to Drake's. Alright. Uh, tasty cakes. It's quite for you. It's full of chemicals. Yeah. 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 Oh, 
It's like which is which which is my which of my children is the most important child? Okay. Noten ta'am lifgam. So we've already done noten ta'am. We know what that means. What that means? Gives a flavor. And what is leaf gum? Anybody know? Hmm? Disgusting. <laughs> it gives a disgusting flavor. Gives a disgusting flavor. So um, this may not surprise uh, those of you who have eaten kosher food before. Uh, but um, if a uh, if 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 a food item is itself disgust or a non-food item uh, that's not kosher is itself like not a tasty thing, and it falls into kosher food, or if something falls into kosher food that renders the whole mixture like not very tasty, uh, and by not very tasty I mean like gross, um, <laughs> then then the then the food item uh, remains kosher, right? So that's another path to nullification. Um, is um, is no ten tam leaf gum. It imparts a disgusting flavor. Um, Wait, and you said it was kosher. It remains kosher, exactly. So you have to love crappy Jewish cooks. Right. <laughs> the thing you dropped in your pot is just disgusting, nasty, and because it's nasty, it's still kosher. Correct. You can spices. I'm still throwing it out. Right. Because first of all, well, well um. Uh, so, uh, um, I dare you to eat this stuff. <laughs> right. So, um, uh, right. I mean, so part of it is the, is the presumption, um, that, uh, that, you know, one would be adding a non-kosher substance to their food because they would want to eat that, uh, because it would make it more tasty. And so if it makes it less tasty or, or not tasty at all, right, then, then it, the, the presumption is that it falls under the category of like this was an accidental mixture, or you didn't really intend for that mixture to be edible, or whatever it is. So then you could still eat it, and it's, and it's kosher. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's kind of confusing because like, where where does the scale rest with who lets tasty things be tasty? Who like some people don't like truffle oil, but. I think it's good, and like with that, yeah. drop it into something else. And Michael's peppers, right? So, <laughs> so part of the part of the answer to that is um, is social. Um, so, uh, are there is there a significant population of people that um, that considers truffle oil um, edible and and tasty? My guess is yes. Um, so part of it is that um, uh, the. Uh, um, uh, the other issue is so the the um, uh, how it's often um, uh, phrased is nifsalm uh, achilat kelev, which means that even a dog wouldn't eat it. <laughs> wow. right. So you're saying like rotted pork or something? Yeah, no, maybe if a dog wouldn't eat it. Yeah. So why not just say like, rotten food? What? Like why not? Then you're just saying like no ten tam lepin just means like anything rotten, basically. Potentially, I mean, I can think of other things maybe that are that that are not good because it's not only the food item itself um, if it's disgusting and then gets put in, but it could be a food item that by putting it into another <laughs> dish would, in the combination, make it disgusting. Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah, right. yeah. Um, like you know, like the potions I use. Chili or something like that. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I actually think that that's actually not a good example because uh, all sorts of people make that nowadays. But um, um, yeah. So I'll tell I'll tell you um, actually uh, it's a it's a sort of count, it may not be the most intuitive example, um, but uh, um, washing um, washing dishes together. Okay, washing meat dishes and dairy dishes together. Right. Uh, no, it's not inherently disgusting. Um, but the but the inclusion of dish soap into the mixture would be a notentam lifgam, and therefore, depending on your perspective on these things, uh, this would be my perspective on it, would not render um, you know the. Uh, the dishes not kosher, even though they've come into contact with meat and dairy together, and because you're in, you're introducing a substance that is uh, that no one would want to eat, right? And 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 mixing it all together, um, and therefore imparting a disgusting flavor. Yeah. You would not have to recosher those dishes. Depending on the dishes, you may not be able to recosher them anyway, because some dishes can't be. Uh, koshered, but I would say correct. You, the, the, those dishes are still kosher. Um, we didn't get into um, how dishes could become kosher or not kosher yet, um, which is why I was sort of hesitant to use that example. Um, but that's, I, I would say dish soap is a really good example of no ten tom we've got. Okay. So, 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 Brad, I, I, I want to be careful because um, uh, um, what what you just said, I don't want to confuse anybody. Um, oh, good. So then you won't get confused. Um, uh, Brad said you have to make sure that the sponge is kosher and the and the soap is kosher. And, and what I would say to that is, no, you don't, um, uh, because a sponge is not food. And soap is not food, and so therefore neither sponges. What? I I I agree. So sponge is potentially different than soap. Um, sponges don't necessarily need to be certified as kosher, but but for various reasons, we'll get to them in just a second. You might want to use a different sponge for meat and for dairy. However, um, again, with the whole sponge issue, you have the issue of no tentam leaf gum. Right? No one's going to like. Uh, like chew on, well, except for maybe my son, but he chews on everything. No one's gonna chew, you know, chew on a sponge to say like, oh, what a delicious meal this was of, uh, of, of, uh, um, of whatever chicken parmesan, right? Um, so a sponge, I think, is actually a, a good example. And if we're, if, if, if we're, um, I saw somebody about this the other day. Um, one has to realize. That the laws of kashrut were all developed in the ancient and medieval world in which, uh, people by and large did not use sponges. They did not use soap. Um, so, uh, so one of, so some of the reasons for the separation of dishes and things like that, um, uh, uh, are related to the fact that they didn't really clean their stuff. At least they didn't clean it the level that we clean things. Um, you could take that information however you want. Um, I'm not necessarily saying you shouldn't have two sets of dishes in a kosher kitchen, um, but I am saying that part of the motivation for having two sets of dishes in a kosher kitchen comes from a society in which people didn't really wash their dishes. Um, and so there was always the the possibility, maybe even the likelihood, that your meat pot, 
you know, still had meat residue all over it when you went to um, when, when you went to uh, cook something else in it, right? Which is why uh, you know you, you shouldn't cook uh, um, milk in a meat pot because. But you could look at your own pots and say, you know, like listen, there's no meat on this, right? I, I like you know scrub this thing clean and whatever, and it has no. So could you theoretically use like the same set of pots uh, for meat and dairy in a kitchen? Um, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. But I can uh, envision a scenario in which a person could do that. Um, there are lots of good reasons to not recommend it. We'll get to those hopefully a little bit later. Okay. Um, all right. So, um, so if the issue in kashrut is that is ta'am ki'ikar, that flavor is the essence of the thing, then what we really need to know, we've, we, we know a little bit about what might nullify, what, what render a flavor... Um, inadmissible or nullified. But if flavor is the essence of kashru, then we need to know what it what in, what affects the transfer of flavor. Okay, what is no ten tom? Okay, and there are um, uh, a handful of ways in which uh, kash, the laws of kashru um, presume uh, the transfer of flavor, the imparting of flavor, uh, most of them have to do with uh, the application of heat. Okay, Because the presumption is that heat releases the flavor of things and enables that flavor to go into other things, which applies not only to the item of food itself, but potentially the, um, the, the apparatus in which it's being cooked and maybe even which, uh, with which it's being served. Right, so if heat is applied to it, um, uh, the the legal presumption is that it sort of like you know uh, opens up the pores for food to go out and to come in to be uh, transferred to each other. Right, so like you know the classic example, the classic like uh, uh, diagram. Right, you have your pot, um, you got your meat in the pot, right, right, and there's fire under the pot. This is, everybody can see what I'm doing here. It's, just not, it's like win, lose, or draw, but I'm just like subscribing to. Um, right? So the, um, so the, um, so the pot, because it's got heat, is imparting flavor to the meat. And the meat, because it's hot in the pot, is imparting flavor to the pot. Wow, that's seasoning. Yeah, that's exactly the premise of the cast iron dish. Right. What is? That you build a, like, carbon kind of film, yeah, on the inside of the dish, and the longer you have it, and the more you cook it, the more flavorful your food will be. That's why you don't scrub it ever. Yeah, right. Right, okay, good. So a really good reason why you probably shouldn't be able to uh, use a cast iron dish for both meat and dairy, right? The same cast iron dish for both meat and dairy, right? So... That notentam primarily happens through the application of heat. There's some other ways that notentam can happen. The, the imparting of flavor can happen. Um, one is soaking. Uh, the Hebrew principle here is called um, kavush. Part of why I'm trying this one with you is just because I like the way it sounds. Kavush kemevushal. Kavush kemevushal. Which means that soaking is like cooking. Soaking is like cooking. Right? So, um, 
Um, now, legally speaking, soaking isn't just like, oh, I accidentally dropped um, or intentionally dropped, you know, a piece of uh, steak into a... We're not talking about heat anymore, right? We're talking about uh, cold items. If there's heat, that's no tentam, right? So if I dropped hot steak into my pot of hot macaroni and cheese, right? Or even if I dropped my hot steak into my pot of cold macaroni and cheese, um, the presumption is that's no tentam, right? Both the macaroni and cheese and the steak and probably the pot too are not, are, have been rendered unkosher through that <coughs> because there's been um, heat that, uh, that, that releases the flavor of the meat into the dairy and, the, uh, and, and therefore the meat and dairy mixture into the pot. Right? Um, so that's, that's with heat. But let's say I drop my cold steak into my cold bowl of macaroni and cheese. Right? Um, so that is not necessarily no tentam. Um, and it is, uh, so therefore it doesn't necessarily render the uh, either item unkosher. It's also not necessarily kavush uh, kemevushal. Um, because I haven't left it in there long enough to really impart flavor. But if I had left that steak in that bowl of macaroni and cheese for, let's say, 24 hours, significant period of time, then the presumption is it's imparted its flavor, um, which would render the steak unkosher, the macaroni and cheese unkosher, and the bowl probably unkosher. Um, right? So that's kavush kemevushal. Right? Um, any questions about that? Um, <laughs> what? It, it is leading up to the ladle and soup. Um, salting, um, which is another great term, meliach keroteach, not to be confused with uh, President Obama's daughter. Um, but I had to go there. Maliach um, is, is uh is the Hebrew word for salt. Melach is the word for salt. Um, and so salting things together uh, is considered like cooking them together. Uh, and that includes um, like, a, like, like salt water, right? So um, imagine I had um, a like nice uh, salty uh, chicken soup um, that was cold, um, but I dropped um, a hunk of cheese into it. Um, uh, that what? Well, you know, when, I mean, so well, you may get into that's no ten tom leaf gum, but uh, let's say it's not for, for the sake of argument. Um, right, it's like French onion soup, right? So, um, so if I so so in that instance, right, kavush kibevushal soaking is like cooking. Would say I need to, uh, it would need to be there for a significant period of time. Maliach keroteach says that if it's if salt is involved. Um, that uh, that it doesn't need a significant period of time to impart flavor, which makes sense because salt draws out things, right? So it's why you put uh, meat in salt to draw out the blood. Um, so if salt is involved, if that salty soup is involved, the presumption is that, you know, uh, basically right when the cheese drops into it, even if the soup is cold, the cheese is cold, it renders it not kosher.